On episode 214 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to develop a great base of tennis fundamentals with coach Steve Smith. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is Mehrban, and I'm back with another interview. This one is a long but very good one with Coach Steve Smith, and Steve co-founded the Great Base Tennis Player Development System which comprises a complete system of player development that emphasizes character, learning, and self-discipline. Coach Smith has coached tennis for over 48 years, and he spent many years learning and coaching under tennis legends Vic Braden, Welby Van Horn, Dennis Vandermeer, and others. And Steve also co-hosts the Great Base Tennis Podcast with Andy Fitzell. And I have listened to the Great Base Tennis Podcast, and it is a very good podcast, uh, one that will help you learn how to improve uh, different facets of your game. And I've heard ones where they dive deep into uh, the principles of certain instructors, including, of course, Vic Braden, which, as you'll hear, is uh, one of the cornerstones of the Great Base Tennis Player system. So I think you'll definitely enjoy this one. And like I mentioned, it's uh, very substantial in length. So (laughs) we should just jump straight into it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Coach Steve Smith. Hey, everybody. This is Mirabon, and welcome to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It's really a pleasure to have on Coach Steve Smith from great base tennis podcast on, uh, it, it, you know, he does a lot of great work with his co-host and co-founder Andy Fitzell, uh, on, you know, not just the podcast, but also just developing a great system to help, uh, tennis players really evolve and improve their game. So, uh, Steve, thanks a lot for coming on and great to speak with you. Mirabon, great to speak with you. Look forward to it. Yeah. Same here. Same here, Steve. And yeah, I was doing uh, some research on uh, under system, great base tennis, and it was very interesting to see the different influences that uh, obviously has, has helped you and your team structure, um, you know, what great base tennis is all about. Um, but can you, first of all, just kind of describe your system and your philosophy of teaching the game? Well, we always mention Vic Braden, the late Vic Braden. Um, everybody should have a written philosophy, but it, it really... It's physics. It's, you know, striking a tennis ball comes down to physics. But with philosophy, our system is really a system of systems. We define a system as an organized plan. Uh, we have eight pillars. We do have a course that's about 15 years old called, called Tennis Intelligence Applied. It's 25 hours approximately. Within that, we've mentioned over 100 coaches. Like we consider ourselves lifelong learners. But it's a system of systems. That's where I think... Um, One of our coaches uh, mentions a theme, tennis, uh, back to the future, the movie. So 
I think old school, new school and tennis teaching, there is no school. So yeah, there's a lot of history to what we do, a lot of validity. Um, it's not opinionated. It's really fact-based for long-term development. Nice, Steve. And uh, let's get into Vic Braden. I mean, I, I personally really enjoyed just watching his uh, old videos on YouTube and things like that. Um, and actually, it's very interesting because uh, you it mentioned that uh, uh, on the website that you had these in-depth apprenticeships with uh, various different great instructors. So what was it like being uh, or, or, you know, coaching and, and learning from Vic Braden? Wow. I mean, that's probably the best word to sum it up is just wow. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm a product of the tennis boom. And Braden came into everybody's living room. Once the tiebreaker was put in place, tennis could be put on TV. Before that, Miravon, the scores of a set could be 22-20. So the tennis just could not be packaged for television. So Vic used to do these PBS commercials. Uh, it wasn't really a commercial commercial. It was what, what, what did they do in between changeovers? And then his book came out in 77. Even before that, in 75, I always tell a story that I volunteered. I was a perennial tennis bum at Boca Raton, Florida. And I volunteered in the mall, Boca Mall, to show a video called go for a winner. It's about mixed doubles, but every principle applies to doubles as well. And so I listened to that tape over and over again. And I think I was very fortunate at that point that I realized that Vic was not just, you know, the little short, fat, funny guy, as he would call himself that, you know, he just had information. And I would say to this day, there was an article in sports illustrated May 10th, 1976 tennis is in, the stone ages and in a lot of ways it still is unfortunately it's progressed i mean the technology with a racket for example but i don't think the technology on how we teach basics has improved very much so my older brother told me you know what you need to do is surround yourself by people who know more than you so i took the role of the starving artist and i found a way to uh, i was a volunteer at first and then from there i mean i worked nights uh went out to california but then i was very privileged to do many things uh in Europe and here in the U.S. with Vic, but it was just fantastic to be one of his disciples. Yeah, for sure. And it was an interesting story to read because I I read that you uh, you lived in your van and bartended at nights uh, while you know trying to work for him. So uh, pretty, yeah, pretty van, neat the stuff. Van, the van didn't have a shower, so we had to illegally jump in a pool. Uh, back in that back at that time, bartending, you know, all the smoke. You know, so it's just pretty, pretty good idea to jump into a chlorine pool after you've been bartending. Yeah, definitely. But definitely a good it idea. Was just, uh, it was just at that time where um, Vietnam War had come to an end. And um, with, you know, I withdrew from school. I later went back to school. But in adventurous in many ways. Um, the, you know, I think of people like, say, uh, Cliff Ritchie, who a great tennis player. He's one of the few Americans that didn't stay in school. Um, so I, I went through the school of hard knocks. I kind of created my own tennis school. I had basically no background in tennis. When I grew up, I thought tennis was a great place to play street hockey. I grew up 10 miles, 12 miles from the Canadian border. But my older brother had studied hockey systems. And I, my parents got me a, a job uh, before I went off to an exclusive prep school, expensive prep school, washing dishes in a boys camp in the Adirondack mountains. And I just started banging tennis balls against a backboard. So I didn't really learn tennis through osmosis. I, I was 19 years old 
And, you know, the more I, the more I read, the more I observed, a lot of kids, unfortunately, get very emotional about it. Beginner to a beginner adults, they get a bad start. I mean, it's the, the tennis profession is very unregulated. Two plus two pretty much equals whatever you want it to be. So there, it's really an engineering concept to hit a tennis ball. It's not, it shouldn't really be based on guesswork. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, you said that tennis isn't, uh, it should be more regulated. So how, um, like in what ways would you regulate, um, you know, the, the coaching and teaching of tennis? Well, parents are blindly, you know, I spent so much time in junior tennis. I basically, I mean, I've done quite a bit in adult tennis, but we train tennis teachers, we train goal-oriented players. And with that, I think your recreation base and a and competitive base are really one and the same. It's just a different pace. But to regulate tennis, the consumer simply needs consumer knowledge. They're, they're blindly writing checks. Uh, for the most part, the coach doesn't have, I mean, I sound doom and gloom, but they don't have product knowledge. If there was product knowledge, it would be a product. And you would see efficient serves. You would see kids coming to the net. People would know how to volley. I, mean, I said the other day in a podcast with the Intercollegiate Tennis Association, you know, I do think everybody picks on the USTA, the governing body of tennis here in America. But, but, but many great people, many great causes, but been so, they spend so much money at the top on player development. I think that money could just be changed and they need to, they do it with umpires. You know, they have experts in officiating that go to all the tournaments and they, they, they observe and they, they coach, they, re, they regulate. And for example, who's going to be good enough to go to the US Open? You know, to become an umpire for years and years, I, did, I went through the program 10 years in a row because I set this program where we get a two-year degree. And one of the weekends was to become an umpire. And you can become an umpire. It's an open book test. And then after you complete that open book test, you can go out and work junior tournaments. But the USTA doesn't do that. But I think really it would come down to educating the consumer. I don't think we do a very good job on TV. Again, growing up in ice hockey, uh, when I was a kid, there was a gentleman by the name of Howie Meeker. And in between periods, you know, they would be teaching aspects of the game. I don't think that people really learn that much by watching tennis on television. I do think that, you know, there's two types of talk. There's fact finding and then there's bleacher talk. And, you know, who's, who's, who's training with who and who's going where and who's based at what academy. And, but I don't think it's so much about the nuts and bolts. I mean, Roger Federer, for example, do we, are we really told the nuts and bolts of why he is so good? I don't think so. Yeah, good, good stuff, uh, Steve. So, yeah, I want to go back to uh, to Vic uh, just for a moment, and I want to ask you. Uh, obviously, like we talked about, a legend of the sport. What are a few key lessons that you learned that you know at the time it was kind of like transformative? That you know something you necessarily didn't uh, think about, think that was true, or just some a new concept. Well, Vic, I think he was known as um, again. Great presentation. People would, he was, he was so funny. He could have been a professional comedian. But anything that can be measured can be improved. He was a myth buster, you know, but the myths are still there. I mean, they, maybe in the 70s and 80s when he was uh, more of a superstar of, of tennis and on television and doing clips and he had you know, two different TV series. But, you know, come over the ball, come under the ball, stay down, toss high for more time, arch your back. Um, stop for for more control the the, the myths are abundant 
So I would think that that would be one for sure. Using film, knowing the, the pros and cons. I mean, certainly you can tell quite a bit with a naked eye, but the human eye sees 24 frames per second related to camera. So to actually slow it down. I think also too, is that Vic was one to say, no, I was wrong doing this. For example, like with Tracy Austin, who became such a great player and he had so much to do with the entire Austin family. Gene Austin ran the pro shop at the Kramer club and five in the family. Tracy's the youngest. But I remember Vic saying that he didn't really understand the serve when he was teaching Tracy, but he was, you know, he was just looking to find a better way. You know, just, you know, a little pearl of wisdom here, a little pearl of wisdom there. I would say it's really, you know, you put science in the forefront, even though he was a self bio self-made biomechanist by formal study. He was, um, um, psychologist. Yeah, Steve, you mentioned quite a, a few actually there, uh, technical wise, I think mainly, but so there's one I still hear quite a bit, which is like, oh, you, you need to toss higher. So can you talk a bit uh, more about that, uh, that one? Vic had a lot of, uh, Maravon, a lot of ways to say things. Um, when you toss high, you have more time to be crummy. You have more time for extra movement. To be efficient, yeah. efficiency is the economy of motion, least amount of moving parts, least amount of muscle recruitment. What you really need to do is program your swing. I think bring history into it. If you know your subject, you know history. That's where the great legendary Bobby Riggs would play people blindfolded for money. Every other game, he'd say, oh, we're a blindfold, and that's when he was going to serve. You ask your group of people, take a survey, what's more important, the toss or the swing? And it's almost 100% people are going to say the toss. But the riddle is the racket find the toss, is the toss find the racket. You really need to program the swing so the, the toss finds the racket. You know, the, when you start tossing overhead, people misinterpret what the pros are doing. Think back about someone like, say, Stefan Edberg. Now, he did, it was like he had two great second servers. So, but how much did a player like that coil his body to the right? And then people think that they're actually arching their back more than they are. So you always have to take a second look and film from different angles. With uh, Vic, he would film from a, an aerial shot. It was called a cherry picker to look down. Uh, but you think of the history of the game. Um, Les Stofan, back in the 30s, uh, his son was on Vic's staff when I was. And it was a sculptor who wanted you know, the, the elbow down, what you see with the pointing with the left hand. You know, it's something that's changed in this country for sure. Not that many kids, or not as many kids, play baseball. Even at one point in America, if you didn't play baseball, you could still throw baseball. So the throwing motion, um, the old baseball trick, we put three balls in a sock. The baseball weighs about six ounces, a little more. Tennis ball, two ounces. So you put three balls in a sock, and you go out and throw old rackets. So they really program the swing. It's, it's amazing. Years ago, Maribond kids would come to a tennis camp. They could throw baseball, but they, then they would be taught down together, up together, scratch the back. And then that momentum of going down and you go back up, that's where the, the toss is very high. But it, it's a common sense notion. It just makes sense. Oh, toss high for more time. And you have more time for extra movements. Yeah, I really love that philosophy of just reminding yourself to, uh, that the toss needs to, to find the racket. Are there any other particular areas on the serve that you find amateurs mess up the most besides, you know, talking about try, that we need to develop the throwing motion itself? Any, any areas that you've seen? Well, tennis, both an upper body sport and lower body sport, you have to really coordinate again, you know, brush your teeth, salute, comb your hair, have it palm down with 
I think the pinpoint versus the um, platform stance. I mean, if a kid has a palm up serve and you start talking to him about pinpoint stance, that's pretty much like the sailboat's got a hole in it and you're putting the sail up. You know, you really, yeah. you, you have to take care of the priority, the primary flaw. So I think that you'll hear more and more people saying that the service from the legs and people go up and down like an elevator. You do have to have a ground reaction for it, stabilize yourself to the ground. And it's the uncoiling, it's the energy coming up through your legs. Um, but it's, it's, it's uncoiling, it's not jumping. It looks like people are jumping into the surf. You know, and I think it's very dangerous for young kids to be copycats, you know, to look at YouTube clips. And I think that that's something that's really hurting tennis. Uh, you know, kids look at highlight tapes. You know, Andy Fitzell has done a great job over the last two years with putting up short Instagram posts. And, you um, from a biomechanical standpoint, the pros are far more similarities than our differences. If you just film right at the contact point, you know, the, the pros can't violate physical laws. For years, Andy Roddick would be asked, how do you serve so big? And he would say, well, I really don't know. Now, I've heard him say the legs, it's all in the legs. When he was a young kid, we have a film of it where his mother said his serve was pitiful. He had a regressed palm up. So you go down together, up together, the racket's on edge. When the shoulder goes forward, action, reaction, and the, racket, the arm goes back and palm up, a palm up position. Granted, he had the heart of the lion and so many other positives, the intangibles. But really on his own, he was working with Stan Bostert at the time, but he just was out here frustrated. He put the racket like this, and then he had the abbreviated service motion. But when you watch Andy hit, he had all of his own idiosyncrasies, gyrations. But at the impact point, I mean, his toss was four and a half feet into the court, way out in front, power line, all the energy at the impact point. Now, most people, when they hit, they have two forces that are going in directions that are counterproductive. They're going left and they're bending backwards. And a lot of reasons for that. The brain's a fifth second ahead of the hand, so people sneak a peek. And then when the eyes go, the head goes. And the, you know, the, the brain can make all the computations. The brain's very sophisticated to make the adjustments to get the serve in, but that's why your serve goes 72 instead of 92. Yeah, um, the serve is huge. With, I'd like to tell people that the serve comes from the time where tennis was a garden party and the servant put the ball in play. But now, I mean, there, there's, we have tennis players. You know, everybody knows John Isner is a great guy. He's so popular, so well-liked. But John is playing one-up, one-back doubles. Can you imagine someone, Sam Queries, uh, we were watching Kevin Anderson practice last night. People just dropping bombs and uh, not going to the net. But that comes from, I think, how tennis has evolved, where in this country, the U.S., at one point, you couldn't, couldn't be ranked until you're 13 years old. Now somebody's 13 years old, and they've played a lot of competitive tennis, and they're programmed. You know, it's, it, it's, it's quite, as you know, Mirabon, it's quite common to go to a junior tournament and you don't see, I mean, you could be there, you know, say it's a group of 12 and under kids, you won't see one overhead. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just tragic. We actually, one time incognito right here where we're staying, uh, is very close to the Delray Beach Stadium where the 12 and unders were held. And one of our students was the director of tennis at that time. So we had a small group and no one knew what we were doing and we you know, didn't exploit it. No one saw the tape just serve 
uh, film players were behind, but we filmed uh, 50 boys and 50 girls on their serve. And over 90% had some version of Palm Up. And this is national 12s. So if they're serving that way when they're 12, it's a pretty good idea that they're going to serve that way when they're 13, 14. Instead of people making the right change with the service motion, if someone has the racket in the palm up position like this, typically what they do a right-hander, they just toss to the left, they go like this. So now they can hit some spin, but they can't hit much speed. And it all comes back to the prevention of injury. Next thing you know, they get older and they've got to go see the chiropractor. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. A lot, a lot of great insight again on the serve. Uh, one of my favorite topics, just because it's such a complex stroke, even though we don't, uh, don't have to really move to the ball or anything. Um, but, uh, in terms of the, um, palm up issue, I mean, I've, I've had that myself, uh, in the past, like, is it as simple as just saying, you know, turn your palm down or are there any other things that are causing it? Cause I, you know, I see it a ton in, in amateur play. So what's the solution? Well, 85% players throughout their whole career, I think about uh, recreational players have some version of palm up. Actually, yesterday we were over at uh, Rick Macy's tennis center and he was giving mm-hmm. a tennis lesson. It's, it's logical, intelligent to start to turn the palm up. And where that comes from is when they're younger, players first start out, they want to get the ball in the box. So they swing straight towards the target and they think they can hit down. So they put the racket face up. When the racket faces up, the racket path comes down. But no, for sure, that's where our history of having uh, studied all these tennis teachers, like say Dennis Vandermeer, he was great with corrective measures. You'd have a person come up and hit on the wrong side of the racket, um, you know, to put the racket on your head instead of the scratch the back position, put your racket in the salute position, you know, make this movement one, two, three. When I talk about swinging a sock, you know, actually, and then talk about low toss is that you have to bend and then twist up. Um, Peter Burwash was very clever with the serve. What he would do is have people serve backwards. And you have to hit that shot. We call it the, when you're, you're running backwards to uh, Ili Nastasi, the backfire like this, the Buka, Bucharest backfire came from Bud Collins. So we, we even start one of our mini tennis games, mini tennis five, where you actually have to put the ball and play this way. We don't want to have someone walk back and, and give it one of these numbers. So um, to have people not even look towards the target, because when you hit a serve or an overhead, an overhead is just abbreviated serve, you swing, you're blind to your target on all shots, but serves and overheads, you swing away from your target. If you're right-handed, you're swinging left to right. So it's very difficult to conceptualize that. It, it doesn't make sense for young players when they're first playing. Like a wheelchair player, Maribon, they're going to put their chair at a 45-degree angle. They're going to stop a right-hander. They're going to stop the wheel with their left hand so they can decelerate the left side, keep the body at a 45-degree angle, and then the edge goes up this way. But with a continental grip, the strings face your target. So people, it is this really grip swing body that if you make an adjustment with the grip, you have to make an adjustment with the swing in the body. So you need the accommodating information. So that's where you can't really teach based on guesswork. You have to be able to recognize the primary flaw, but with one flaw, there's a counter flaw. So it is like knocking over dominoes. It's, you know, I think it's great to have architects say this should be the design of tennis. This is what we should do to promote tennis, build tennis, but you still have to have people that have pounded nails. And Vic used to always say, if you can change someone from palm down to palm up, you truly can teach tennis. Um, I remember being one time at, at, at a place at an academy and had a very bright scholarly, scholarly student assistant and they're watching three private lessons and they're all serving. And I said, it's, it's just money. If you go and you listen and it, it's money, it's dollars, donuts that, 
they won't even recognize that flaw. But it's, it's, it's unfortunate because parents, you know, their child will go through down. We always, when people say, How, how's my child doing? And say, well, the light at the end of the tunnel is the train coming right at them uh, because they have to change. But they play year after year. Before we get on the podcast with you, we were watching uh, a double Austin Krychek. So Austin was seven. He had to totally change his game. We have all that document on film. You know, granted, there's so many chapters to a player's story like that. But yeah, so we go back to his film. He was a palm upper. And it's like, you have to take time away from competition. You know, it's kind of like um, the, a dog can't swim. Dog does the doggy paddle. But, you know, if you're going to swim the American crawl, you, you have to change your mechanics. But then the, the brain's programmed. So to deprogram, reprogram, but then the kid wants to win and ego kills. So it really should be, you know, winning is a byproduct of skills. Uh, you know, today, I go back to one interesting fact in World War II, Americans were throwing grenades where the Germans were taking a grenade and putting it on like an eight, 10 inch metal rod. And they're going like this. And sometimes they're going, whoops. So, and how accurate somebody can be, you know, just going out, throwing a baseball, uh, throwing a football years ago, even I wasn't a baseball player. I mean, I played baseball. I mean, I remember being a kid and telling my mother, I just want to play street hockey during summer baseball. And she said, no, it's un-American not to play baseball. Uh, but today, and you know, kids do get picked on, you know, how much screen time they have per day. And, you know, a lot of young kids, they really just, they can't even throw and catch. I'm always trying to explain to people a great game called baseball tennis or softball tennis. So two eight-year-olds playing, they can kick a soccer ball back and forth or pass a basketball back and forth, but can they actually rally? And then even when they do serve, um, you know, we should be more clever in how we teach little kid tennis. The little kids should be able to stand in the middle of the baseline and just serve anywhere in the court. And, and maybe the rule should be where they got to serve from this position because it just, you know, you want to be told that you're doing it the wrong way. And the sooner you're told you're doing it inefficiently, the better. But most of the time, people don't know. Winning is confusing. We always say it's not confusing. It's totally confusing. If you're playing somebody on the other side of the net, that you're being measured first on that person, person on the other side of the net. It's not like you're being measured by a stop or measuring, measuring stick. Oh, well, a lot, of, a lot of great stuff there. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to go on the court next time and hit some some backward serves. I do agree that, uh, you know, once you look at a court, then uh, your your whole mindset shifts to, to getting that ball in. Uh, and also like kind of, I guess, you know, extracting another drill from that is you you probably would say that players who are having trouble with the the palm up, they can just kind of start their racket that at that salute position essentially, and then just serve from yeah. there. Would that be a good you want, drill? You want to be careful using progressions um, for too long. You want to explain to the learner mm -hmm. because it, it takes the brain about 10 minutes to program toward for a task. The speed of that actually has nothing to do with power supply. So you can serve from that position, but um, the serve goes 450 degrees. You, it goes 90 this way, 180, another 180. So you, you actually can be cutting off racket at speed. Um, years ago, people used to pick on Jay Berger, who became a top 10 player in the world. Oh, yeah. yeah. He didn't have that fluid, continuous motion. Um, even Agassi and Sharapova at one time did that as a corrective measure. Roddick simply stayed with it because he was the best American for a decade, number one. And he was one of the best servers at that time. I think a lot of people try to copy that unsuccessfully. You know, you can have abbreviated serve, but um, there's a lot of other factors involved. Just 
versus I just had one, one point. There's so many points with all, all strokes. Yeah, definitely. Steve. So you did touch upon, you know, doubles formations and, and how to play that. So I'm curious, you know, it's, and kind of taking the, the look, looking at it from the lens of uh club level players, which you, you actually did a great podcast on doubles uh, somewhat recently, I think maybe, but if players are, you know, primarily have ground strokes as their strengths, I mean, would, in that case, would you still advocate for a one up, one back situation or two back? Or, I mean, or, or is it still like we need to get to the net? No, I mean, you have to go to the net. You have to go to the net with too much emphasis on who's going to win the two inch trophy. You would just think the Bryan brothers, now that they've retired, I mean, serving volley doubles is becoming a lost art. You know, two of the last three years I was at the NCAs. And it's pretty common now for the NCAAs, at best, we're talking power five conference top teams have one of the three, one of the three teams are coming forward with, um, you know, same thing with freshman in high school, freshman in college, if someone is in grade nine and they play one up, one back, they're programming, they're conditioning, it's habit forming. And that's what they're going to do in their sophomore. And then what happens is the ground strokes are, are better than the volleys. Uh, so people really aren't thinking of going forward. It's like the, the Williams sisters, when they first came on the tour, Billie Jean King, and certainly she had the credibility position to say, what are you doing? You need to go forward more. So they're superior athletes in doubles when they first came on the scene. They don't play as much doubles now, but they were superior athletes playing an inferior system. So that just comes back to just because you won. Uh, you know, we were just watching Stevie Johnson play with Austin prior to this podcast and Steve's a great tennis player. He's the most decorated college tennis player of all time. Now, granted, he played four years. So, so like a, a McEnroe, a Connors, he only played one year. But, I mean, they're serving to the backhand every time. And he's lobbing off most backhands. I think what happens is people, Stevie Johnson's a great, great tennis player. I mean, I think he's been top 30 in the world. But if you're watching, if that was other sports, people would be very, very critical. But I do think that we have too much of the off factor. Uh, but He's going with what he's got. So we're not really criticizing Stevie. He's in the finals in Cincinnati. So, okay, hats off to Stevie Johnson. Just like I said earlier, John Isner, seven feet tall, close to it, serving from a tree, 130 plus, and he's staying back. You know, his coach, Manny Diaz at Georgia, said to me, because if, if he had a better backhand volley, if he had the backhand volley that Welby Van Horn taught, he'd have millions more in the bank. Um, so I, I do think that we um, get a little bit starstruck looking at the very best players. And that's, that's going to be typical of a kid. Like, well, they play one up, one back. But if you were to look at the legends of the game, I'd say Johnny Mack, McEnroe, or Naratilova, they both could play. They proved that they could play on the WTA, ATP circuits respectfully, almost 50 years of age. Well, that's a compliment to them, but that's not really a compliment to the tour. You know, you go out to the $15,000, $25,000 tournaments now, Maribon, and the, sometimes in a pro match. First, it's a first level, the lowest level of pro tennis, but they're not even, players are not even warming up at the net. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's really tragic. Um, it's just, it's really mind-boggling. You know, I repeat myself with Sampras. The last time he came to the net, an official match came 104 times. But he didn't influence tennis because say a 10 year old, the kid wants to win, the parent of the kid, parents, the coaches, everybody wants to win. 
like the sport I grew up on, grew up in, if you, if you really couldn't skate, you couldn't play. You know, so in other, other sports are I just by circumstance are taught much better than tennis. Style. Yeah, almost anything goes in tennis. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate the, the perspective and advice on that. Cause it was interesting to me, you know, I, I think it was maybe three years ago or so at the city open, I was doing some media stuff and I interviewed Dennis Kudla and Francis TFO. And obviously, you know, they're not like top doubles players or anything, but you know, I, I asked uh, Dennis about the one up one back. Cause I was a little surprised and he said, Oh yeah, you know, the tech today and ground strokes are big, like, you know, it, it works. But um, obviously if you look to some of the best of all time, like they're just going to the net. Um, so. Yeah, Craig O'Shaughnessy has an article out uh, called The Big Lie. Uh, mm-hmm. Just the other day, I was talking to Jeremy, Jeremy Wurtzman, who's a coach at the University of Indiana, and he's a former student of mine. And someone looks at our course, Tennis Intelligence Applied, you can see how he volleyed as, as an 11-year-old and how he changed it. And, you know, at one time, he was ranked number one in college tennis. Now, he didn't become a household name, but he was rereading Braden's book. And he goes, it's all in here. It's like with what... O'Shaughnessy is saying, Bill Jacobson said in the 80s. Um, so I, I do think with tennis analytics, it's getting better. People are more in tune with numbers. But the real true analytics are, what are the numbers for the grip? What are the numbers for the shape of the swing? I mean, uh, every time you turn your hand one bevel, the racket changes 45 degrees. You know, so you turn the racket eight times, it's 360 degrees. Most people teaching tennis don't know that. And, I, I, you know, Andy and I were talking about we don't want to come across uh, in an egotistical manner but they just, you just don't know. In our world, if you don't know that, you don't know the grips. And then say the, how far does a racket hit get below the ball? Even the term inside out, inside out means to swing away from your body. And it's not that anyone's wrong, players, commentators, inside out, outside in, inside inside, that, that's related to tactics. But I think that the listener at home, and there's another thing too, it's just so easy to become a tennis teacher. Here in Florida, we have the car trunk pros, but I'm a member of the USPTA PTR. I have been for 40 years. I was a tester, but basically $200 in a weekend and you're certified. But certification doesn't mean education. And I think the young, young people today, not to beat up young people, but, you know, like for myself, the, to find a way, you know, I went through from school. I later went back to school, but I found a way, you know, I, oh, you, you could volunteer and you can work for free. You know, I think what happens way too many times, I think really a tennis teacher should teach for three years as a volunteer. They should apprentice under, say, a master pro. And I don't mean a master pro of the PTR or USPTA, a master pro, because you can actually apply to be a master pro. It's, you know, um, you know, and again, not to beat up the USPTA PTR, but it's not like a nursing license. It's, it's, it's more like a membership to a fraternity, you know, you sign up and, and if you're proactive, you can do great things with both organizations. I would encourage everyone to be a member. I'd be encouraged people to be in this country, member of both, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting thoughts there. Yeah, definitely more needs to be done, but I'm curious, you know, when the, the comments about um, Manny Diaz uh, saying that uh, John Isner, if he had a better back in volley, he could have made a lot more money. Um, I'm not sure how much you like analyze uh, John Isner's volleys, but I'm curious, like, is there something technically that he's doing that's a little off? Uh, or if, if you don't know that, like just generally back in volleys, like what the issue is with that? 
I one time made a video and uh, Mike Sell, who was coaching him at the time, came up and said, I saw your video. And I went, uh-oh. He goes, no, it was 100% right. With, again, I mean, he's been a top 10 player in the world. He now is the best American. So it's, it's, it's not to badmouth John, John Isner by any means, but, you know, it really comes down to grip determines the angular racket phase. The angular racket phase determines the angular racket path. You have to have the left elbow up. But someone like Welby, uh, you know, John, I've met people who coached him in juniors, people who coached him as in Manny as a college person. Manny was taught by the play by Welby Van. I was taught to teach by Welby. But Welby, the first three lessons, you won't even hit a ball. And after each half hour lesson, you take a half hour lesson a week, you'd shadow swing in front of the uh, pro shop window. But there was no rush. It was playing mini tennis. And back in the day, mini tennis was service line to service line and just hit the ball softly. I think the, um, the red ball, the orange ball, the green dot ball, they're great training tools. But really, I think it's an insult to people who study tennis or people, certainly older, uh, my senior, that all kids played mini tennis years ago. Now kids are programmed out, lessened out because they, we actually produce better players in America when kids just took one hour, one lesson a week. Kind of like how people learn to play piano. They're calling people up, doing baskets. Um, so no, the it's not that he's it's wrong how he is near volleys, but you know, in, in, for him to change, that's a whole different topic. You know, the, the horse is out of the barn. It's like one time Agassiz said about Roddick on TV. He goes, oh, "I die for his serve." And they said, "What about his forehand?" He said, "No, no, it's too complicated. It takes him too long to get the racket in the pocket." Then Agassiz, I love to listen to Agassiz. Agassiz was asked about Roddick's backhand because he has the racket below the wrist. And the uh, color commentator, the two people in the booth, the second person talking to uh, Agassiz said, well, would you change it? He said, no, the horse has been out of the barn too long. I think it's even like with someone, a kid's a senior in high school and they're the top top 10 in the country. I think it's more artistic to work within the player's game than to change their game. So for us, a great base is just solid fundamentals. And, we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves. I mean, it, it, it's something that would help every level of play. But typically, kids don't get a great beginning. Um, you know, like say, one, one myth of many is there, you, there's no time to change grips. And actually, you volley with a continental grip. A true continental grip opens the racket face at a 45-degree angle. A composite grip that's between the second and third panel, the base knuckle of your index finger and your heel pad, used to be called the Australian grip. And if you look back at the great Australians, it's like Jose Garris calls it almost a continental grip. So if people were really listen, but most people say, no, you volley with a continental grip. And, you know, well, this is the continental family and every, all these shots were hit with continental. All the emergency shots where the balls hit behind you, behind you, and the serve and the overhead. But, you know, one of our students who hits the ball really well on the backhand volley, Raven Claussen. You know, he spent, uh, almost five years with us rebuilding his game and wow. you just change your grip this much, this much. Now you can drive your volley, but most people, they have to finesse volleys. You know, I think of Sam query, a great player. I remember telling Paul Roeder years ago, he's back with the USTA on the uh, educational side. If you just don't want the players of the future volleying inefficiently, but really when it comes down to it, Many times they don't even volley. You know, they're going for the $100 shot from the 10-cent position. Coming back to O'Shaughnessy, the big lie, 
you go to the net, you win two out of three, it turns into four out of six, eight out of 12, 16 out of 24. If you win two out of three, you win six, oh, six, oh. So what happens is people win with a mediocre system, you know, where kids are in the, in the early ages, they're avoiding the net. A little kid goes to the net to lose at a faster rate. So really a kid, uh, Roger Federer, a kid is much better off to play multiple sports and it just teach, teach him to play off, you know, certainly you get on a tennis court, but you can teach people how to have great technique in the basement, the garage. And winning's a drug. I mean, people love to win. And what you, you know, with, with uh, you know, yesterday watching some girls play UTR, the UTR event, Big Brain used to say, you might as well mail in the scores. If one baseline player is a little better than the other baseline player, they don't have options. Just the way Roger Federer returns in the ready position, he has an option to do many things, say, say for example, on the forehand. Or if people were to look at Djokovic, I mean, he simply, it looks like he just worships, he admires the ready position. Most kids, they have an extreme grip and they don't, they, they don't have the ready position. So when they turn, the troubles begin because they don't have a ready position. And I think what happens is it doesn't take place in other sports where you outgrow basics. But there's many things, like a basketball player, the target regulates a person just being at the fall line and having a palm go towards the target. Tennis players don't even know where their target is. You know, a Bradenism, people that study our content, the dimensions of the court and physical laws dictate control production. No coach's opinion, any new theory. People need to know that behind the baseline, you have less than 20 degrees than as you go closer to the fence. I mean, the court, the court is three feet short being three times longer than it is wide. You should have the shape of your swing should match the shape of the court. Um, but, you know, and I think really you, what we try to do is dummy it down. Like it's not, you know, like, oh, that sounds so high tech. It's not, it's not, you know, the kids can clearly understand, but you have to know there's, there's the academic side, there's a the clinical side. Say for example, on the forehand in the right hand corner, you go to the baseline, you point down the line or the racket, like a school teacher to the point say, close your eyes. Vic used to do this in every clinic, close your eyes. And then people point to the second court. They point to the side fence. They, they don't really know the, the, the court's less than 20 degrees wide. They think the tennis court's gigantic because they're, they're target oriented. They need to know their targets, but they have to also be contact oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all these building blocks. And, you know, granted, if you're out there in early childhood development class, you don't have to get into, uh, you know, too much complicated, complicated information. But if you make a contest of just drop hitting balls in the alley, the alley's four and a half feet, the alley's a sidewalk. Braden used to say, okay, you gotta um, down the light sidewalk and a cross court sidewalk and the path of the racket should follow the sidewalk. And you wanna have a long hitting zone. Um, I'd say one of the biggest problems in tennis right now is everybody's hung up on the forehand and they're mistaking the recovery as the follow-through. You can't see the follow-through of the human eye. Uh, for your listeners, uh, we always tell people, go to YouTube, plug in Borg, Fetter, forehand comparison, and they look identical, basically. But um, there's a reason that players recover by pulling their left elbow to pull their right hip. But, you know, Fetter is almost four and a half feet out to his target on the forehand side, where the racket tracks out towards the target. So you hear this lag and snap and, and it's like, please, you know, but, but at the same time, coming back to one of your first questions, 
you know, I do think it is unfortunate that a lot of people, you know, we're giving out information online, but I think that there's many people that haven't really been in the trenches. They haven't done their 10 years of teaching and they're putting content online. But I think really one of the best ways to regulate, Braden would always say this, is to regulate tennis teaching. Imagine if someone showed up and they said, okay, I want to see your beginners. I want to see the people who have only played, you know, a year, year or less. And you say, I'd like to see the person who takes the ice cream cone and puts it in the middle of their forehead. How are they hitting the ball? Because what's taken place too much in junior tennis is based on recruitment now. I mean, I understand that to be in college tennis. In college tennis, okay, you're recruiting successful junior players. But that's where parents will bop and shop and they're, it's like looking for Baskin Robbins. You know, how many different flavors do you have to try before you, okay, this is the one for my forehand. My backhand. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a lot of marketing involved in that aspect. Um, so I guess for the club level players, I mean, let's say that they, you know, technically they're one of their strokes is it just has a, a few different pieces kind of being executed inefficiently. I mean, would you go back to that approach of like not even going on the court and doing like, like shadow swings and things like that? Like, well, what, what's your approach and advice for somebody who wants to retool their stroke? They're committed to not going out and playing tournaments for a while like what what what's this what are the steps they well take? I, great question i think there's no off season in tennis it goes 12 months even even with adult players say a recreational 3.5 player they go from one season to the next and so um you know to, to sit down with someone and say okay what why don't you take this this season from your team off but educate the whole the, the the whole team and have, and teach them how to have practice sessions. I remember way back in the seventies working for a company called all American sports. I was very, very young and inexperienced, but I was supposed to run wine and cheese round robins. You know, we teach tennis all day and in the evening round around Robin. It was just instruction destruction. But I, I grew up in Jack. I grew up in sports and go, this doesn't make any sense. So we had wine and cheese and throw some beers in for these adult campers and we practiced in the evening. And one of the first times that I actually, the first time I was in Japan, I remember the very first thing I ever saw in Japan was at the air, airport, looked out the window and there's a group of employees that are working in the airfield and they're in a big circle and they're doing exercises before they start. They're doing jumping jacks and go, Whoa, that's a little bit different. But in adult tennis, if a tennis teaching professional goes out, I've made this make mistake before because I teach so many juniors. So I'm doing an adult clinic and I go, all right, let's jog a couple laps, get the body temperature up, and then we'll stretch. And everyone just says, they just look at me because adult tennis in America, juniors don't, excuse me, I should say adults don't run a couple laps around the court. I remember a group of women that would go in the sauna with their tennis clothes on for a couple of minutes ago. This is was up north where there's a lot of snow. It's like, okay, we've got to get warm and stand in the sauna for a few minutes. With, but no, I think you have to just sit down. And we worked, we worked with quite a few adults. It's pretty, pretty interesting where they figured out if we work with you, because if we work with somebody at three, five, and they come and train with us and train like a junior, we can have them be a four or five if they were to do follow the pathway that we recommend. But we've had definitely uh, close to a dozen adults go, I don't want to do this. I, I, I keep practicing this way. If I'm a four or five, I have less people to play with. If you're a three, five, tennis is much more social than if you're a four or five. 
But I think the biggest thing is to come back with injury is that, you know, you're serving this way and it's just, you know, you, there's a very good chance that you're going to have tendonitis and, and be struggling. So, um, but I, I think that if people knew that, so they're on an adult team and they, you know, the, the captain of the team, the coach of the team, okay, this group's going to, or these two or three players are going to take some time off and work on the game that they can reposition themselves. They're not, they're not totally out. Years, years ago, college freshmen couldn't play. Stan Smith, Arthur Ashe. I share that with people all the time, but um, it was a developmental year. Now, college kids, it's just so extreme the other way. They don't, the really, really top kids, some of them, they don't show up until January. And that's really, there's no development in that. The coach uh, reloads in January and says, okay, we got this kid in. So, um, but I just think sitting down talking to people and going, hey, this is a sport of a lifetime. Vic used to always say, if you're 15, that means you got 75 years to work on your game until you play in the 90 and overs. So, I, but I do think people are, are very fearful. And there's two sides to it. To, you know, okay, I'm going to take 10 steps back, take 100 steps forward. But can the person helping you really help you? Like I would tell people, I think I could take a lawnmower apart, but I don't think I could put it back together. Yeah, I could take it apart. But, oh, and I think it's the same with strokes. Is that? I had a gal work for me one time where uh, Jennifer Roberts, and she told me she was very young, we're both young. And she said, you know, I really haven't got people to hit the ball better. And I think people are very pretentious that they've actually dealt, they've actually uh, developed players. And that's another thing too, is that the consumer not having consumer knowledge, it's amazing how many people get prestigious jobs because they can play. I mean, no one's asking Bill Belichick, uh, tell us about your playing career. You know, how far can you punt the football? And so tennis has some, has some uh, challenges. Yeah, hundred percent, Steve. So I do get this question a lot and I, you know, I understand it kind of varies based on what you're working on, but I mean, I think somewhere on your website, you, you had that repetition is the mother of skill and success. So, I mean, generally speaking, I mean, what, you know, how much time is it going to take for us to, uh, to revamp, you know, a stroke? Uh, or any, any just advice, like generally about that for amateurs? Well, repetition, I have, have some answers. They're just typically my time. Someone's, someone asked me and I'm asked quite often, how long will it take me to change my strokes? Right. And I say a little less in the ice age, because if you're asking me how long it's going to take to change your strokes, you're not thinking about changing your strokes. You're thinking about how long it will take. Mm. And, you know, Pandemic has changed some things, but in the course of a year, we have people come from here, there, and everywhere to work with us. And it's a pretty captive audience. You know, they fly, they get off an airplane, and we we actually film the players playing. We film all their essential strokes from different angles. We put them through skills tests, but someone has, for the most part, sent them to work with us. So that's a little bit different. I think when you are working with someone in a different capacity, like say a typical club or someone just takes a tennis lesson is, you know, you can also, you can work with someone gradually. You could band-aid and make this change first and then see how that goes. And then we can add to it. Now, Dennis Vander was always clever on the forehand where years ago, people were taught to take the racket up high. If you're an advanced player, because you need a loop, but if you're a beginner, you have to take the racket straight back. So there were some issues that people were stuck on years ago loop versus straight back and the beginners were told oh you go straight back but then we know now that the brain doesn't work that way you, no such thing for little strokes 
no such thing, no such thing as little strokes for little folks, but Dennis would just say, well, let's add to your game. If you keep the racket at up high, you'll be able to hit a drop shot. You'll be able to have disguise, plus you'll have racket at speed. So um, when we tell people, you got to buy a cone, you got to buy a foam ball, you have to hit it off a cone, they start to look at you cross-eyed. But for 15 years, I taught in Tampa at a tennis school right next to where the Yankees have uh, spring baseball. And they have a swing coach who could have been a superstar, like a Derek Jeter, and he's got a ball on a tee, and the coach is next to him. And tennis players become indignant. You're telling me to hit up a cone? You know, then the baseball player gets in an on-deck circle, like a Michael Jordan gets at the foul line, and, you know, you see him shadow swinging this movement. Getting someone to practice in front of a mirror. You know, we make films for players, narrated slow motion analysis, and it's a little disheartening, a little discouraging that you know, less than 15% of the kids, they're supposed to watch it three times and send us notes. They really have to take responsibility. It's the human spirit, it's willpower. Change is difficult, but you just, you got to meet it head on. You got to meet it head on. And, you know, that's where, like, say, a college coach, because, you know, it's in this society, tennis circles today, could you get a blue chipper to come in and not play as a freshman? But I do think that coming back to college tennis, how many college teams, have really had somebody make money playing pro tennis. But to sort of put things in perspective, uh, there will always be tournaments. And I do think that kids are like, well, how am I going to improve my UTR? Tournaments, tournaments, tournaments. I get pros mad at me because I think a lot of pros are telling kids, go play tournaments, go play tournaments. Because many teaching pros, and I know so many work so hard, but there's a lot of teaching pros that, you know, they have a pretty light on the weekend, but they work, they work their juniors Monday through Friday. And they're having fun doing all these game-based drills Monday through Friday. And when then you say ready, play, and they go to the tournament, not so good. You know, you really want to have your kids unhappy Monday through Friday and they go to the tournament and they're very happy. You get kids to work on technique, they're going to complain to mom and dad. And if the kids complain to mom and dad, generally that means it's a really good practice. If they love practice, it just means it's probably pretty much a bad practice. You go to club after club and they're doing the same, the same drill where I know you as a player did this and it was fun. Two players on one side, maybe even six to eight players on the other side, feed in approach shot played out. If you win that, you tag up to the baseline, feed in a volley, win that, tag up, feed a lob, win that, then you run over to the other side. I share that all the time. College tennis coaches do that some as a, as a warm up. Now, if people have been taught to hit the ball really well. It's a great drill. But if not, it's just happy, busy, good. People think happy, busy, good. But it's just organized chaos. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, no, it's funny you mentioned that because there's a, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 
like a social event every Friday um, that's hosted around here. And uh, that that's the, the hands down the favorite thing to do out of all the different things is like the, those like Russian crush and drills like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think the crowd there is more in it just to have fun on Fridays more than develop their game, I think. But, you know, from where you're from that area, um, I spent some time with junior or a, um, oh, yeah. So- I've watched, I've watched, he came, spent four months with me. I mean, I've watched uh, Kudla play mm-hmm. uh, many times. My son, Connor, he played Kudla. Uh, he was two points away. He missed a sitter to have match point. Oh. But that guy is very, very good. Top 50, 60 in the world. There was one other, if Tifo's younger, help me out. He's from that same group. Uh, Franklin. Mitchell Frank. Mitchell Frank. With, um, if you took the three of them, and said, okay, we're going to take junior race speed. We're going to take Mitchell Frank's mental toughness and take Kudla's ball striking. You'd have a big time player for me. And again, I don't know um, TFO, but I was around him for a couple of weeks because my son was playing the same matches. And I know they played doubles together before and such, and he's doing great, but you know, he's great. You know, he first came out seeing 15 year, the 18 orange ball was like, Hey, this guy could be the real deal. This guy could be the, the next American to win a major. And, you know, he's, he's, he's a big time player, but he's got some holes in his game. You know, I think Andy Roddick, I liked how he said that Roger Federer's an artist, a technician. I just hit the crap out of the ball. I used to say this is Andy Roddick. His game is Swiss cheese and Roger Federer's game is um, American cheese. Andy's game. And he's the first one to say, it, he's got a lot of holes in it. You know, I, years ago, they had an academy and I went there to train the coaches uh, a couple of times when John was, John owned it, but he had hired somebody that I trained to run it. Then later, the Roddicks uh, sold it to a group of pros that, that I worked with. And Andy wasn't really in San Antonio where the academy was. He was in Austin. But he's very vocal. I mean, you know, my volley sucks. And, um, you know, he was in a Wimbledon final three times. But I, I never had – I was never around Roddick, but – I mean, I should say I never coached Roddick, but I was around Roddick a bunch. Um, somebody who's very famous in tennis now for uh, all the hard work and all the great things he does, Craig Tiley. Tiley was a student of ours, and it's a great story. So he's at the uh, tournament it's in Wichita Falls, the Texas sectionals, so hot. And John Roddick, we run this small program in Tyler, Texas, and we thought we had four kids who could win. There's no 10s at that time, just 12, 16s. 12, 14, 16, 18. John beat one of our players. And, and I said to Tyler, we're talking about this kid, John Rock. I haven't seen him play yet. And, you know, John would know these names like Clayton Stanley and Chad Clark, people that we coached. They did, they both did quite well. Both played at Texas, actually. And I remember Tyler saying to me, well, John Rock's really good, but his brother's going to be amazing. I said, why is that? He goes, well, it was over 100 degrees every day. And all he did is hit the backboard the entire time. Didn't stop hitting the backboard until someone walked by the hand in the balls at the tournament desk and he was kind of in their face, all juiced up. Like who won? What was the score? And the, the person would tell him who won, you know, what the score was. And he'd go back to hitting the backboard. So those are the things I like the story behind the story. I, you know, we do study technique. People come to see us for technique, but I'm really intrigued by the character of tennis you know, the backstory, how to be, how do people become so good? And I don't think it's just nuts and bolts of forehands and backhands. By any means. Yeah. So you can kind of tell like when, when a player, a young player is like super into it and just doesn't want to stop playing that they're going to be really, really good. 
Well, Nick Baltieri, um, I, I would put myself in the top 10 in the world. I may be a crummy tennis teacher, but I put myself right now for the top 10 people in the world for how many hours I've taught tennis. I've taught a bunch of hours. And then, you know, like 48 years of it. And I worked some long days. I don't think anyone has seen more uh, tennis families that have the desire to have their child or their children become great players. No, and so you can you can tell when you meet the family, you know, hungry dog hunts best. I mean, are they going to, do they really understand what it's going to take? And that's why there's so many immigrants that are great players. You know, their, their parents were learning a new language, a new, a new way in a new country. And yeah, so I think, you know, Nick, deservingly so, he's in the Hall of Fame based on the environment he put together. Like a Braden and a Vandermeer, they got in the Hall of Fame based on not environment created, but education. How does somebody who hasn't been through, like, let's say, hardships of, uh, you know, an immigrant, let's say, um, how do they kind of recreate almost, you know, the, the type of hunger and desire that's really needed to push themselves towards, you know, the, the pinnacle of what they can achieve? Well, common sense. I mean, common sense is dying. The first time I ever heard this, I'm sure my oldest brother heard it from someone else, but it's very difficult to have rich parents and poor kids. Uh, John McEnroe stole this from someone, affluenza. I mean, do kids, really, do kids really need to have an upgrade on their cell phone? With, you know, when I go into a place like Panera, in fact, I was with Andy Fitzell at Panera today. And um, when I'm in a, it's a nice coffee shop and you go in with your group of tennis players and there's teenagers on the other side of the counter. I think you have to stop and say, you know, like Billie Jean King, you know, tennis is a privilege. And, you know, you have to teach the life lessons, you know, for someone uh, in the States, you know, here in Florida, especially in this Boca Raton area, there's so many clay courts. Um, juniors don't sweep clay courts. Juniors go to a tournament and they don't roll dry. You know, if you're in Sweden, or in Sweden studying tennis, and you know, I was told it's a fun story. I was told I was in Germany and the Swedes were doing so well. And this was when Borg had taken some time off from tennis. The, board, the, the Swedes had six players in the top 10 in the world at one time. So I was my first trip to Sweden, and I was told to take bottles of booze because booze is so expensive. So I take with Mark Hamill, we drive up from northern Germany, take two cases of booze. And so this one guy was so nice to us. Hey, come out of the car. I got a gift for you. So I give him two bottles or whatever, gin. And he said, hey, this is great. Why don't you come back tonight? And, and Borg is, you know, he's, he's practicing. And it was, just, it was during Wimbledon, the first Wimbledon he was not playing in. But Borg's done and Dahl's done hitting tennis balls. They're sweet courts. You know, the, the tennis profession is service-based. It's not education-based. Uh, I went to Czechoslovakia to study tennis. I was just amazed that the juniors, this was in 87, the juniors were getting all the balls up. Practice was over. The juniors put all the equipment away. The juniors swept and lined the courts. So I think we have a lot of things backwards. Um, you know, you can be at a junior tournament and just take a survey. When a match is over, how many kids stretch? They, the match is over, they're going to stretch. And then take another survey. How many times is the parent carrying the bag? And you're going to eavesdrop a little bit. Is the kid saying, I want to go to Chick-fil-A? I want, I want, I want. Um, you can ask some kids today, you know, what's it mean to brown bag it? And they don't know that that means to pack a lunch. With Harry Hotman about with Australia, you know, he's asked what happened to Australian tennis. And he said, well, we became affluent. You know, when I was a kid, even wealthy kids would work a summer job. 
you know, I do think, I do think that's where tennis is year round, you know, years ago, kids would play three sports, marijuana, and you're playing a seasonal sport, but you had, you had jobs where you mow your neighbor's yard, you rake leaves. And so people need to learn how to work. Um, I've, I've met, I'd like to say it's, uh, for every junior player I've met, I've met two parents. You know, it's not always that way, but then I've met a lot more parents than I have players. And I've learned so much by parents. I should write a book on parenting with, um, I know one parent who had the idea that their child had to help the mom with household chores to earn points to play in tournaments. It's kind of like Dobson's book, uh, Dare to Discipline. Um, you know, they do it in kindergarten say, okay, here's a, here's a chart, you know, there's the attitude then, or the effort attitude, the reward, you know, you get a little sticker on your, on your lunch pail or, or whatever. Um, but no, I, I just don't think that we're, we're clever enough. I think there's a big difference between intelligence and, and, and cleverness. You know, the tail in junior tennis, many times the tail is wagging the dog. Um, with, I told a story last night, this young player from, um, El Paso came to work with me and I was with Carlin Navarro who knows this young boy. And I said, I'll tell you a story. So it was back when people were where they were, they all had red Wilson bags. But if at one point they came out with a black and gold bag. So this kid comes in, I've never met him before, but he's flown in to work with me. And I just told his mom, I said, your son's boycotting. So what are you talking about? I said, he wants a new bag. He's telling you that his red bag, it's just faded. He's just telling you it's torn and he can't use it anymore. He's carrying all his rackets because he wants the black and gold. Wilson bag, she looked at me like, how do you know? Well, I know without knowing because I've been in the kid business since I was a kid. And, um, you know, young kids are going to have, I mean, I think young kids should just have a flip phone. You know, why do they, you know, have to have all the, all the bells and whistles on a phone? And the parents really should police it. You know, parents don't realize that, you know, their kid can't break an eight minute mile and they've got their five hours a day on a screen. And yet they're telling, they're telling you that they want to play national level tennis. So that's one of the reasons that the players, you know, I spent a lot of time in Europe and you go to the under 14s, for example, and uh, countries are not as wealthy or producing better players. Years ago, the French were spending the most and they asked Jack Kramer, we spend more money on tennis than anyone. What's our problem? And he said, your answer's in the, in the question. You know, aside from that, the French, that's where the UTR system, they have a great competitive system, but um, you know, the four, the countries with all the money, the four grand slams, I mean, in the end, how are they doing with player development? You know, not so good. Not so good. I mean, and that's, um, you know, really there's, there's a better chance of a family producing a tennis player than a federation. I mean, all you gotta do is study like, how did this happen? You know, we saw Coco Goff the other day and now she's connected with Patrick, uh, Mortigal, Mortigulu, but she, I mean, I coached this young kid for years, Victor Lillov, and they're the same age. So I'd be at a tournament and they're both, you get, when you're at a tournament and, you know, it's the semis, it's the, the finals, there's not many people left around. And, um, but I've always been intrigued by her work ethic. And you get on YouTube and just look at, look it up, you got to dig, but you know, how hard she worked physically. I mean, so um, she could have a much better game technically, but she is a warrior. I mean, she's an athlete, competitor, uh, 17 years old, and it looks like she's done 20 years of fitness. 
Yeah. Yeah. I got to watch her uh, up close at the city open. There was like a women's invitational because they took the WTA tournament away from it, but uh, just, just really amazed by her power at such a young age. I also got to see Raven as well uh, win the doubles for a second time in a row, I think. Speaking of that, I was curious um, with Raven, uh, you, you mentioned that you uh, worked on um, his his game and I think his volleys. So like what I'm curious if you could tell us like what exactly you worked on, like with those specifically. Well, same thing with the process. Love the process. Process will love you. Is that someone comes in, he came in with PJ Domdo. They were both one and two in South Africa. At that time, uh, um, Craig Tiley, uh, we were working on it with a very wealthy man who was uh, sponsoring boxers. And he had a business called GoPro International. So, um, yeah, Raven was uh, recommended and he came to us and he didn't play for six months. You know, when he came in, we knew he was going to be with us for a long period of time. We knew he wasn't going to go to college. So, you know, I tell Raven, tell everybody you're both a tennis player and a tennis teacher. Pretty confident that he's uh, one of the best tennis teaching tennis teachers on the ATP tour because teaching is information transfer. And so, no, we said, okay, let's evaluate your game. Um, at that time, someone who was a year younger, uh, Ryler DeHart, is somebody we coached for, for a long, long time. And so when they first played, DeHart was a better player. But we documented it. We even still have all that on film. So, you know, it's some strokes, it was a complete overhaul. We say that that was surgery, and then some strokes is a band aid. Uh, but, you know, coming back to one of your earlier questions, I wouldn't be a very good college coach because I would go to junior tournaments and I would say, you need to come to our program because we'll teach you how to serve, forehand, a backhand, a volley. You need to improve everything. And, a lot of times they wine and dine and they, they romance the player and say, we want you and we have Nike and, you know, we're going to play this schedule. Excuse me. It's even at the point where Marathon, they're saying, well, your, um, your first fall, what we'll do is we'll send you to pro tournaments. And I would say what we're going to do your first fall is you're not going to play. We're, we're going to go back to the basics. And so no, no, it's, de it's definitely a process, but you want to always be teaching people to be a self-coach. You always want to teach, teach people to be an independent thinker and a problem solver. Again, you don't really do that in the early childhood development classes, but I mean, if you tell kids, okay, your swing's a merry-go-round and the ball rotates like a Frisbee. I mean, you could be six years old, seven years old and go, okay, the ball is going this way. Get the swing to go like a Ferris wheel, rotate like a bicycle tire. Kids can understand that. So you know, say, for example, I talked to a dad today, son's a very good tennis player, Arush Ganji. You know, he's not quite a 12. And you know, certainly there's things with the pandemic. And, you know, you never could play um, the level ones and level twos. Just here recently, his parents have been in the country for a long time, but they didn't have the, the paperwork. They weren't residents. So, um, you know, you play with someone, you know, you're, you're, I should say you coach someone. And he's played three, five years where he hasn't gone forward. You know, one of the players that he was trained with is Spencer Johnson. And he went years where he didn't lose one set to Spencer Johnson. And you keep telling him, say, he's forcing and you're not. So you can do situational training. Say, okay, everybody has to serve the ball. Okay, you don't have to play set and the ball. And can, you don't hit ground strokes. 
but the brain has two sets of motor programming, one with stress and one without. So when you say ready, play, we're going to play a set, kids just tighten up. And so it's just so sad. I think that's what a problem with uh, years ago was USTA ratings and tennis recruiting and now UTR. Kids are so tight. They're so result-oriented. You send a group of kids to go play soccer, and afterwards you're going to go to lunch. They don't even remember who they played with. Uh, they were arguing about what happened during the soccer game. And you, but you send a group of kids to play some sets, and then when you go to lunch, they come back, they know what the score was with every, every player. You know, we quote Roger Federer all the time. I didn't know you were supposed to win in practice. So I think you really have to sit down with people and go, this is long-term vision. You know, I, I think in the States, we make a mistake even on the academic side is young student athletes, they don't see a college campus till they're in the 11th grade. I mean, they should be seeing college campuses in the sixth grade. We know, you know your transcript, that's what you have to submit when you're applying to college, grade nine. But I used to say that Jewish moms are the best coaches in the world. They cultivate achievement. You know, you're going to be a doctor, lawyer, accountant, or you will die. The book, The Battle Hymn of the Mother Tiger, I tease Chinese moms. I go, is it piano or violin? It's definitely math. One year I made videos for the, and you know, people are like, oh, it's so racial. I said, no, it's not. With, I made videos it was for more than one year, but for, uh, for a series of years, I made videos for all the Harvard players on the women's side. And one year, they only had one girl that didn't have an Asiatic background. So it's no different than math, you know, with, you know, you know, People don't get so excited that while well, your kid uh, is first on the multiplication tables. I actually was first on the multiplication tables. People thought that was going to be really good at math, but I, I peaked in the third grade. And, and it's, it's just crazy. Um, but, you know, say a kid uh, plays the trombone or he plays the violin and he's in, the, in elementary school. It's really the burden of the parent. Okay, we got to go listen to this. I mean, there's no tickets. It's not like people are dying to get in. I mean, some kids learning to play, play a horn. It's like, oh, you don't want to be in the room. Uh, group of, uh, perspective. So some kid plays chess and they lose. They just know that the other kid's a better chess player. But in tennis, for some reason, they think, well, I lost today, but I'll beat him tomorrow. The macho male ego, you, you played college tennis. Some kid is number two in his dorm room. And next year, he thinks he could be number one in the world. And it's insanity. Einstein, he's going to do the same thing over and over again. He's going to make no changes and expect to have a different result. Mm -hmm. So I think to be straight up with a kid, uh, Vandermeer was a genius. He would feed a ball, 10 balls to a target. And then another player would just mark down where the 10 shots would land. And you hear other expressions, um, like say in basketball, if that kid was in a boat, he couldn't hit water. In other words, he can't hit a shot. But tennis kids, are, they're just not really told, hey, you have no forehand. And there's a lot of kids, they, they go through junior tennis and they think their forehand is their go-to shot. Then they find out that your forehand is not very good. But that's all they hit. They don't hit backhands. There's, it's amazing how many kids will run around a backhand today. And I go, I think you should be able to have a hit a backhand down the road. And, they're, and I think it's an injustice where they're, they're 9, 10, 11 years old and they think, and somebody's talking about the modern game and play like the pros. And that doesn't take place in other sports. Well, this is how Nadal hits it. This is how Federer hits it. And the, a lot of the coaches that are saying that, they really don't know how Nadal hits it. Federer hits it. Nadal had a, a two-hand forehand when he was playing in the 12th. People should know that. There's not, you know, people aren't really looking at the film of, let's say, what did, what did Roger do when he was a little kid learning how to play? 
we've done homework on that. And that that's it's it's not so easy to say, okay, this is this is what happened, but but how how did so and so teach tennis? Uh, it's, um, Sandy Mayer and Jean Mayer were both top 10 in the world. Dr. Alex Mayer, he built a contraption on the garage. Uh, we have one on top of a backboard that we built, or a regular hitting wall. So the kids would uh, have to hit up, just like a baseball player would throw the ball up on the roof. They have nobody to play catch with. They throw the ball on the roof, the ball rolls down, they catch it, and they throw it back. The baseball kids would just throw a ball into the glove like this. So he was clever and he had his kids lifting up. He used to teach the lob first. And you teach the lob because then the racket hits going way up. Well, I get a little bit annoyed when I hear, you know, old school, new school. There is no school. And there should be an appreciation for the tennis teachers from the past. You know, it's like this kid, Sam Riffis or Sam Rifus, what a class kid. It's not taking anything away from him, but to speculate, you know, Jimmy Connors 50 years ago. It was 1970, so it wasn't quite 50 years ago. I, I think he won it in 70. So, yeah, it was 50, 51 years ago. He wins the NCAAs. If Sam plays Jimmy. You know, not that Sam had to play with a T2000, but they played with the same equipment. Who wins? And, you know, Jimmy it wasn't so big on the serve, but, you know, say Andy Roddick plays Jimmy Connors. Who wins? Andy, um, Jimmy would nullify power of his serve, and then Jimmy wins. You just have a checklist. Who's got a better forehand? Who's got a better backhand? Who's a better mover? And they're both mental giants, but you'd have to even give the edge to Connors. But, um, you know, the people are hit, the balls are being hit about two times slower in a rally, but that's where people are playing with a wooden racket. So when people look at players from the past, they oh, what they did won't work today. I mean, Christy Everett was born in 54, so she's still, she's no spring chicken, but she can, I mean, she just hit the ball deep. Like she said, when she came on the tour, no one, it's like a big Chrissy Everett quote, when I came on the tour, no one could hit ground strokes. And it's true that people were wrong with the grip on the forehand, but they were playing on bad grass. They're playing in rain. You know, they, the grass would be very slick and people would be wearing spikes and people were going to the net on all costs. But I think the tennis, like for example, um, we do understand that the forehand should be hit differently today, but now it's the only shot people, people, you know, maybe even to a certain degree, people that are playing on TV, but it's like, you go watch a junior tournament and it's like the kids got one shot, you know, they're just trying to rip forehands. And if they're a little bit more athletic or they're in the twelves and they've had an earlier growth spurt, it comes back to. This is sad. It really, again, it's, it's upsetting to me that people are taught poorly. And that, that's what we're trying to do with, you know, giving out free content. Um, and I think with Andy's work this last, the last two years is that, you know, now with him helping out so much, it used to be called Steve Smith stuff. Use my name in third person, but it's, it's not. It's not Steve and Andy's stuff. I mean, there's a lot of homework that's been done. But you shouldn't judge the unfinished product. I mean, people want to microwave tennis. I got that term from a South African mom. She brought her child to work with me for a long time. And, and um, with, uh, she said, you don't microwave tennis. Is, it's, it's, it's more like a holiday meal. You have to take your time to really train a tennis player. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, Steve, uh, as far as the forehand versus the backhand, I mean, what's the reason why tennis players backhand are so 
lacking in comparison to the foreign? Is it because we just hit more forehands or is there some any other sort of like scientific or biomechanical explanation for that? Well, I think there's lots of explanations. You go to Daniel Quell's book, The Talent Code, they're building myelin through repetition. The kids just hit forehands and they'd be, you know, they're a product of repetition. The backhand and forehand, the principles are the same. The two-handed backhand for a right-hander is a left-handed forehand. The, the shoulder housing they hit, you can play the ball later, hitting a forehand, but when, therefore, you can pull off top if you can play the ball a little bit later, so a little more forgiving. But what happens, Mirabon, is, say, for example, I'm right-handed, the ball's coming to the backhand corner. My first instinct is to start to turn this way for a forehand. And I okay, I can't, I can't quite get to hit a forehand, and now I'm going to hit a backhand. Again, coming back to Stevie Johnson, just watching him play. You know, they're in the finals of Cincinnati. I was really surprised. First set, three, it was a receiver's choice. And Austin and Stevie, they lefty-righty combination. They, they could have the forehands in the middle. And his backhand going cross-court would have been more forgiving. Um, but for him to try to hit an inside-out backhand, you know, Craig Boynton, when he was working with him, had him hitting underspin. And, you know, we always trick, ask trick questions. Okay, kid, what's better, top spin or underspin? What shot lands deeper? You, you know, people didn't like playing against Steffi Graf's underspin backhand because not many people hit an underspin backhand. So simply they don't hit it. They don't hit it. Uh, years ago, people had better backhands because it really was too many times people were told one grip, even the genius of Welby Van Horn. I never, I don't know if anybody had a better system for teaching beginners, but Welby, who I spent time with until he was in the 90s in a nursing home, he used to call the forehand grip the beginner grip, and then he would change it to championship grip because three out of the four grand slams were on grass, people playing wooden rackets. But people should look at the best. Look at Djokovic. I mean, look at Agassi. Gilbert said about Agassi, his backhand's a gift of God. Um, Agassi was asked, why don't you go to the net more? Braden asked him that because he would do so well. He was 36 years old and he was really hitting through Nadal. But when Nadal's fitness, Agassi had to win a point two, three times. Vic, Vic said, Andre, why don't you come into Bali? And Andre said, have you seen me Bali? <laughs> um, but, you know, so like a Jim Courier, granted, um, that was his game. And he even called his company, maybe he still does, Inside Out is and you know he just works so hard he's so competitive uh, i was told by ron woods who ran player development one time two ron woods in tennis but uh, ron woods from new jersey not ron woods from uh, texas and he said well if you put a, a wheelbarrow with millions of dollars in it and samples would step back and go okay i'm going to find a way to go over the wall or jim courier would just put his head down and go right through the wall but I think it's, that's the shot that they hit. Um, and, but, you know, the term finish, finish points, that's a Finnish player. Now you think it's a Scandinavian country. They, we used to say years ago, that's a Finnish player. They could finish at the net. And we used to also, always also say years ago, the way that kid's playing, it won't work in the 18th. But now it does. Um, you know, I asked juniors that come visit me, okay, you're from uh, the Inner Mountain. You're from this section, that section. Tell me someone, you know, say they're 16, 17 years old. Tell me somebody in your section who plays servant volley doubles. Tell me someone, you know, that's one of, we always tell people, one of the toughest things about being a servant volleyer in doubles is to find a partner who serves in volleys. But, you know, you ask a kid, they're in the 18s and they're hard pressed to name somebody in their section 
who occasionally serves in volleys. It is, it's just lost arts. So, um, you know, people get power by hitting away from their body. So people are confident moving away from the body, like a Jack Sock, um, Gonzalez Austin, Austin Gonzalez, um, Gonzalez Austin. So he beats Jack at Kalamazoo in the 16th. My son, Connor, was coaching him. And, and I, but I was helping him out. I didn't say one word to his friend, uh, Gonzalez Austin. But Jack Sock, he loves to move to, he's a right, he loves to move to his left. What you need to do is go high and heavy to the right and make those type of players hit forehands. And you can go high because generally they don't volley, or if they do volley, they have poor grips and poor, poor mechanics, poor swings. So it's like Connors had lost love and love to Lendl, turned to champions. But it, he also, after that, beat, beat Lendl twice at the US Open. And, you know, Connors weighs 155 pounds. He goes right up to Lendl in the locker room, points his finger at him, goes, I'm coming right at your forehand. You really have to be able to go to someone's strength to exploit their weakness. I don't think that young players sit around and talk about tennis. I mean, I know they don't. Um, on the pro tour, they're talking about fantasy football. You know, they're, they're, they're talking maybe about some investments. They're, they're not really, it's not a think tank. Uh, you, you, you would think, and I remember learning this from Braden years ago, that all of a sudden you're around players that are playing big time tennis. Um, you know, last night we were watching Kevin Anderson. You know, he went to Illinois where, you know, Tyvee was, and we think of, uh, you know, John Lafayette, who worked with us, he's been a Davis Cup coach, or Jeff Coatsier, Raven Claussen, just watching, and he's got four people talking to him. Like, okay. And he's a great player. He's been a Wimbledon finalist. He's been a US Open finalist. He's serving out of a tree, and he's not the best mover. That goes, goes right back to, I do think that if Tylee had stayed at Illinois, um, he would have got Anderson, if he, and if he could kept him there for four years, he would have got Anderson going to the net more. And, it, you know, you just can just speculate. It, it, the guy is a great, great tennis player, but what would have taken Kevin Anderson to get one more step further? Just like you mentioned Francis, Francis Tifo, he's 15 years old. Years ago, uh, someone like a Pancho Seguro who coached Connors, um, you think of people like Jack Kramer, they would just say, hey, kid, you know, Jack Kramer was the best 18-year-old in America. And, you know, now he, he, when he was done, his father said, okay, now you got to play a man's game. And, yeah, so it, it's, it's fascinating. But, you know, John Wooden, the great basketball coach, the legend, never, never, were the, he never mentioned the word winning. Uh, we love Virginia Way's quote. I don't um, – with uh, – beautiful tennis, winning tennis, winning tennis doesn't lead to beautiful tennis, but beautiful tennis will lead to winning tennis. Roger Federer, we talk about brain typing, he's an ENTP, he's a planner. Braden asked him, Roger, what'd you do to become so good? He goes, I made a list. I made a list of all the shots they wanted to hit. And he also said it was important to him to be a good looking player. I don't think that that, that Andy Roddick or Jim Courier were thinking that. Roddick is inducted into the hall of fame and Courier sitting behind him and he goes, and Roddick is a great speaker, a great comedian. He, makes, he pokes at himself a little bit and says, I might be the worst player who's ever got into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and he goes, but I feel comfortable because Jim Courier is sitting behind me and he also had a crappy backhand. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I think that 
the sound bites that you get courtside, the players are so wired, they're so focused. What you hear a player say courtside being interviewed, it's better if you can go back and listen to what's going on in the press conference. But even then, I mean, I'd love to just listen to the, the players. What do they have to say about what's going on? Roger Federer, if you don't have a volley, if you don't volley well, you won't go to the net. And you know, he said, he actually said it at a time, a day after he won Wimbledon, he said that he, Roger slipped up a little bit. Perfect Roger said, well, I feel good now, but last night I mixed my drinks a little bit. So he had partied the night before winning Wimbledon. And then he, I say he left his guard down because he said, it's frightening how low the level play is at Wimbledon. I know that less than 2% of the time my opponents are coming to net behind their serve. And it's grass. So I, I, yeah, I think tennis, um, because it's man on man, you know, we, we, we do this drill called the tiebreaker test. Kids come in and they're top 10, top 20 in their section. If it's six shots of designated targets, and many times they're 0707, courtesy feed. So they get, get up to the net, say, okay, can you hit a volley cross court in the service box? And granted, it's their first day meeting us and there's a camera on them. And, and they, they, again, it comes back to that. They can't hit the broad side of a barn. Um, with, but I think that there's way too much marketing tennis. This is the elite program. This is the world-class program. Now, I do have some people I'm talking to, and it's a privilege to talk to, that have listened to me for years. So ice hockey, when you uh, become an 11, 12-year-old, you become a peewee. That's the, you're in the peewee tournament. The year before, you're in the sport division. But there's way, way too much marketing you know, where, you know, I'm in the high performance group coaches, you know, I think I've said this enough where people told me they like it. It's a funny joke is that hi, I'm, they introduce themselves to me. They say, hi, I'm Joe. I'm a high performance coach. I shake their hand and say, I'm Steve. I'm a low performance coach. <laughs> you know, we should have tournaments for who can teach beginners. And in all fairness to most college tennis players may run camps. Most college tennis players are not lost. Most college tennis coaches, Tennis players too, because the players should be able, should be able to give back to the game. They should be taught to teach. But most college coaches, they would be totally lost to teach beginners. One of my fans is uh, Ty Tugger at Ohio State. I really like Ty. Ty is honest though. He's just going to tell you that's not what I do. You know, and he's great at what he does, and it's amazing how many matches he's won. Um, but in that case, it's like, well, if I'm going to have a camp, you know, and for years and years he hasn't had a camp. That's a responsibility too. Is that I think straight across the board, and that's for American tennis to get better. I like the question you asked about regulating tennis. I think the USTA needs to reinvent itself. They should spend little or no money on player development. They didn't start in player development until 1987. And it should be spent on education, education, education. You know, with, uh, you know we, we need to get to the point where it's not so expensive. You know, to mm-hmm. teach a parent high, high, inside out. It's not all that complicated. Well, we need to do a better job with the content that we have. One of our critics said, and I think you have to listen to your critics, is that it's like drinking water from a fire hose. Mm-hmm. But if someone were just to watch our course, uh, tennis is long. There's a man, Flanagan, who runs like six, five or six places down here as a student of ours. And he was a camp director at Harvard. And what he took with it, what he did with our tennis intelligence applied is he just took like say a hundred clips instead of 365 clips. You know, you'll be a summer 
tennis instructor, you don't need to know the ins and outs of charting a match. But, you know, and I think that's an injustice in tennis too, is that typically at a club, you're going to see uh, the inexperienced teachers are with the young kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You know, you're going to see people who can play the game well, they're former players and they get a prestigious job and they're going to be at the weekend tournaments. They're going to hand out business cards and the parents are going to fall for it. Hook, line, sinker. Like this is going to accelerate the process in boxing. A sparring partner, they wear a mouth guard and helmet. They don't say anything. Sparring partner in tennis, they're paid too much money. And then they think they have something to say. So they say it and they should just be a sparring partner. I really, I mean, really uh wondering how this ustr um hit i mean is what is it called paid hit um you're familiar with that uh vaguely yeah the utr has a program now that so like say a mom can call up a kid who's got a utr 11 maybe their kid's a utr 8 and they can pay the utr 11 i don't know the ins and outs of it maybe they have to be over 16 and i think they do but they have to go through some profiling that make sure that it's not gonna be problematic, but we need to have tennis become a sport again in America. It's too much of a business. Yeah. I percent agree with that, Steve. Um, appreciate all the insight there too. So, um, a couple, couple closing questions I want to ask you. Uh, one is, um, three books. I know you've, uh, you've studied the game, you know, so much and you probably have like 50 books in, in your head, but what are three books that you would gift a, a friend who's an amateur tennis player to help them improve their game? Um, I was asked about this the other day, um, with it's difficult to find, but teaching children the Vic Braden way, that would be one for sure. If you could find a copy of tennis for the future, tennis, 2000, tennis, 2000 is an updated version. All the information that's in tennis uh, for the future of tennis 2000 is in the book, teaching children the big Braden way with um, I think uh, Daniel Coyle's book, the talent code, you know, why are there, they're just small pockets of places, you know, where, you know, I'm asked, okay, tell me, tell me an achievement with, we were in Tyler, Texas for 10 years. The, um, the second five years of that program, we had, we had around 10 students and they're just guinea pigs that we were teaching, you know, as we were teaching tennis teachers. And uh, that second five years, we produced more state champions in Dallas and Houston combined. So with, I don't really think that the, all the self-help books, um, Jim Lair, I think, you know, his books, um, you know, you go way back to Ideal Performance State. He did so many things, you know, journals for parents. But full engagement or total engagement, that's the title, total engagement or storytelling for mental toughness. So, I'll go, you know, those, anything by Lair, by Braden, and then I think Coyle, uh, those, those three authors, that would be good. Coyle's got the, the book that uh, follow up. Uh, we tell every kid they should have in their shoulder bag, the little book of talent. It's 52, you know, basically short pages. I mean, you could read the book and, you know, 45 minutes, but just, okay, I'm going to take it out of my bag and I'm going to read one every day. I could read at least one, maybe the beginning of practice and practice you read two. And then, you know, it just needs to become part of your DNA. You know, it's just the basic things. You know, we tell kids, um, you know, why don't you do 10 minutes of yoga three times a week? 
why don't you have a chart? Okay, we, we can measure, can you touch your toes? Um, you know, get a stopwatch, you know, in your neighborhood, measure how far it is to run 40 yards or 40 meters, 400, you know, your heart rate, your rest. Anytime um, with, with tennis development, if every time a junior player is with a paid professional, it means they won't be very good. I mean, um, this comes from uh, Mia Hamm in Daniel Coyle's book, but it's been added to, you know, champions are made when no one's watching. They're bent over at their waist and they're dripping in sweat and they're gasping for air. Um, motivation means to move. And um, most tennis players, they, they don't understand you won't get what you expect, but you will get what you deserve. And, they, you know, I think really to work smart and work hard. Uh, but tennis kids, you know, you ask, you ask most tennis kids, what's a library card? They can't even tell you. <laughs> they can't tell you that. Well, you can go to the library and you can check this book out for free. And a tennis lesson is expensive. And it's really, especially stay in Maryland where your weather is not fantastic year round and you have to pay for the court and the lesson is it's crazy how expensive it is. You know, I think that people should have read uh, this autobiography or the, that autobiography, you know, but most tennis kids, they're not well read. And again, you know, I don't like to be beating up my profession, but most tennis coaches are not well read. And I, I mean, with, you know, after the pandemic, I met with John Embry with the USPTA Mm -hmm. um, you know, he told me that I should submit a proposal, meet with the board. And that was, you know, just before the pandemic is Nick Brayton had an academy for coaches called the USTA. He gave the name that when they asked to the USTA, because at that time, the USTA was a USLTA. But just fact-based instruction is that, you know, I tell people, okay, there's 23,000 people in Arthur Ashe Stadium. Now, how many people know the tennis court is 78 feet long? Well, in football, they know it's 100 yards. This, the game just teaches them that, okay, 10, 10 yards for first down. So you have to sit back and go, okay, why do people know more about football? Um, granted, there's 22 people on the field and the commentating afterwards. Where did everybody go? But with, again, you have the question you asked in the toss, take a survey. What's more important, the swing or the toss? With training tennis teachers, can people, do they have the analytical skills to recognize a palm up? Then can they fix a palm up? Like, you know, policing the game um, is not, it's, it's again, very emotional to me. Okay, I'm at a tournament site, but okay, on the two back courts, there's a, there's a junior clinic. And there's 14 kids playing. And I'm going to stay there long enough to chart how many of those kids have a palm up serve palm up overhead. And unfortunately, Maribon, most of the time, it's 14 for 14. And that's where so many people leave tennis. I had a very smart person tell me the other day that he doesn't like pickleball because it's invading tennis. It's, it's not its own sport in the sense it's taking over tennis courts. I'm sure there's all sorts of positives, but I think we've really lost out by not getting seniors my age to play um, with say, that's one thing about like a green dot ball on 60 foot courts. You know, we, we really missed out not getting, uh, seniors. I mean, it's, you know, I think too many people are smiling and it's like they're converting tennis courts as we speak to pickleball. Yeah. That's not a good thing. 
not if you're a tennis purist and you're for the good of the game. Yeah, I uh, definitely have mixed feelings about that one. But overall, uh, definitely sad to see a lot of the course being taken up. And that happens, you know, to a lot of public ones around me. So great book recommendations, Steve. Appreciate that. And we'll have those in the show notes uh, linked up for you all to check out. Uh, also, just want to give a shout out again to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it and where people can uh, check it out? No, I should be able to tell you that. Uh, for me, we have Great Base Facebook, and I know that it's posted on Great Base Tennis Facebook. I, I should be able to tell you that, but it, I really I don't know how to find it. Um, but with uh, we have a website that's free. There's five courses on it. There's, there's other reading materials on it, some blogs. Um, we have about 5,000 pages on uh, Great Base Tennis Facebook. Uh, one of our students had leukemia and started it, and he was bedridden. And wow. we, um, unfortunately, he didn't survive for very long. And then since his death, we put up something every day, Eric Oberhammer. And then Andy is 500 plus on Instagram. So, yeah, I think if you go to, uh, you can go to YouTube as well, Great Base Tennis YouTube. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm subscribed to the podcast. So I think if you just search on probably on Apple podcasts or Google podcasts, I'm pretty sure you can see it there. Um, I was actually just listening yeah. to it on my iPhone. Yeah. So, so yeah, definitely. Um, cool, cool. And, no, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt it. Everybody and their brother has a podcast, but year number one, um, I think we covered a lot of ground talking about our pillars. Um, but we want to really solidify it in the next year coming up. You know, I think that we need to learn and have our podcast be shorter, but we're, we're flattered that people are listening to that. Yeah, no, you guys are doing a great job and just yeah, keep it up. Appreciate all the great content that, uh, you know, it's free and out there for everybody to, uh, to learn from. So definitely highly encourage everybody to check out the great based, uh, tennis podcast. And we'll also have a link to that as well. So yeah, uh, Steve, I uh, just can't thank you enough for all your time. I know we've been going for a while, which has been uh, a lot of fun, uh, for day- today's episode. So, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you. And, uh, again, acknowledge you for all the hard work that you've been putting into the game and thinking about how the game can be improved and how we can best uh, help people fulfill their tennis potential and also just generally their potential in life. So uh, appreciate it, Steve, and uh, talk to you again soon, I hope. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Um, understand that you're a lawyer by trade. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, still am. So, so tennis is your passion. Tennis is your hobby. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I work, work full time as an attorney, but uh, I just do a lot of side tennis stuff and play a lot. And I'm actually going to play in an hour uh, as well. So, yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's good. Well, thanks for everything you do for tennis. And next time we talk, I'll tell you a few, a few lawyer jokes. You probably heard all of them. <laughs> it's fine. I, I still love hearing them. So I uh, hope to see you. Know, you Jake in, in said about well. 500 lawyers at the bottom of the sea. What about it? That's a good start. <laughs> All right, we're we're cutting that uh, out, editor. <laughs> Just kidding. We're gonna keep it in. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, they, Steve. Well, no, yeah, well, it's great. I hope your listeners got something out of it. Oh, I'm sure they did. I mean, I, I know I did. Uh, so, thanks again, Steve. Talk to you soon, and have a great one. All right, everyone. All the best. You too. Thanks. Yeah. All right. I hope you really enjoyed my interview with Coach Steve Smith. And if you want to learn more about the Great Base Tennis System, then go to 
the show notes page, which is where I will have a link to uh, the Great Base website as well as the Great Base Tennis Podcast with both Steve Smith and Andy Fitzell. So thanks to Steve for coming on to the show. Great to have a fellow podcaster on. And that makes sense why we went for almost two hours because <laughs> we both like to do the podcast thing. Alrighty then. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, I would highly, highly appreciate it if you would take a minute or so to leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. You can do that in Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice that you use to listen to the show. There'll definitely be a review button somewhere in that podcast app that you're using. And I'd also like to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show, and this one is by H. Jackson Brown Jr. And he said, when you can't change the direction of the wind, adjust your sails. Love that quote there. So with that, I really appreciate you listening to the show and for all your kind emails and messages of, of support for the show and for Tennis Files. And we will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.